0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary.
1: In a world where southern bells reign supreme and the prosperity of a golden era seemed like it would never end, two women, one fictional and one real, lived parallel lives after their comfortable existences were blown apart by the winds of change. They broke free from the expectations society had for them and had to rely on nothing but gumption, charm, and their wits in order to survive. Margaret Mitchell and Scarlett O'Hara, two women, two heiress, one amazing podcast. Thank you. You're welcome.
2: Let's
0: talk about Gone with the Wind. But first, let's drop it into history. In 1936, Billboard magazine published its first hit parade. Edward VIII abdicates the throne in favor of marriage to Wallace Simpson. The Hindenburg makes its first flight. Hitler breaks the Treaty of Versailles and is taking full power. Uh, In the U.S., the Dust Bowl is damaging land and lives, and the country is in the Great Depression. FDR is elected to a second term as president, and in June 1936, Margaret Mitchell's epic novel of love, loss, and survival, set during the Civil War and Reconstruction, is published.
2: Hello, and welcome to the show. Once every season, we cover a fictional subject. We've covered the likes of Cinderella, Red Riding Hood, Alice in Wonderland, and today we're here to bring you yet another literary heroine, none other than Scarlett O'Hara, the iconic Southern Belle from the book and, later the movie, Gone with the Wind. Almost every American has at least heard of it. I venture to say more of us have seen the movie than have
0: read the thousand-page book, Call me crazy. Um, I didn't read the thousand page book until this summer. Well, there you go. Well, it caused anger, controversy,
2: nostalgia, adoration, and it's the second most sold book in the world after the Bible. Not even William Shakespeare himself can beat it. Fiddle. D. D. It's one of the most loved and the most hated books on earth. Either of which will do a wonder for your sales numbers. Scarlett would approve. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the plots, let's summarize it. I will try to make this as broad as possible to encompass both the book and the movie, which are really quite different. Um, So, come closer, children. Take a seat. Here we go. Let me tell you a story of the Old South. A story that, in the movie, bears just about as much truth as Peter Pan. Right. But enough romantic nostalgia in it to take over and honestly beat out the real history, which Margaret Mitchell was much better at putting in the book. So here it is. Scarlett O'Hara, spoiled and beautiful, goes to a barbecue at 12 Oaks Plantation. She declares her love for Ashley Wilkes, a man who won't love her back, and meets her soulmate, Rhett Butler, who she despises. Through the Civil War, as her golden society, in quotes, crumbles around her, and she claws her way back, she discovers a lot about her strengths, and we discover a lot about her weaknesses.
0: How's that for a short summary? Yeah, that's way shorter than the the three-page version that I have, so I kind (laughs) of like it. (laughs) So Margaret Mitchell, the author of
2: Gone with the Wind, was a child at a time when Civil War veterans were still alive. I mean, you know, they were grandpas now, of course, and they'd gather all the little kids around them and tell them stories of battle and glory, and then Grandma and Aunties, who'd been through it, told of hunger and everything they've seen and taking care of soldiers and making buttons out of old acorns because they couldn't get any because of the blockade i mean they would fill these children's heads with the wonder of the old South. these porch stories were where it all began so let's start at the beginning with the life of
0: gone with the winds author margaret mitchell margaret mutterlin mitchell was born on november 8th 1900 in atlanta georgia she was the second child to Eugene and Maybel Stevens Mitchell. Eugene was a lawyer. He was brilliant and conservative and humorless. Maybel was a stern intellectual, very disciplined. She was a suffragist and an activist, but she wasn't exactly what you'd call a warm and fuzzy parent.
2: Papa's people, now how southern is that of me, Mm -hmm. went back to the 1600s in this country. In fact, Papa was a fourth generation Atlantan. That's established. That is. So Mm -hmm. the money came from Cotton speculating mostly, also from practicing law, and mostly from marrying wealthy ladies. It's a Mm -hmm. classic. (laughs) His male relatives were these larger-than-life personages, warriors from the Civil War with the scars to prove it, daring in business, Bold in politics. He had 11 brothers and sisters. He turned out brilliant, yeah. but very shy because he'd been bullied by these big, loud people his whole life. Mama's people were comparative newcomers. Her Irish-born, French-raised great-grandpa arrived only in the 1830s and he made money in cotton and the
0: railroads. Yeah, two big moneymakers right there.
2: Her grandma, Annie Stevens, was described as a dragon sitting on a pile of gold. <laughs>
0: sounds really warm and fuzzy i wonder why her mother is the way she is Hmm. well mama
2: get this was the seventh child of 12 but the oldest surviving child you guys we don't realize how fortunate we are today Mm -hmm. little maybelle was raised mostly at grandma's with two maiden aunts who adored her and sent to convent school to finish her education her father praised her mind and encouraged her unlike papa's family so really she had better self-esteem than her husband. And
0: simply worshipped her. Oh, the classic putting the woman on the pedestal right here. She could do no wrong, and he gave her all the powers she wanted. She wore the pants. She absolutely <laughs> wore the pants. But, but, in a proper Southern That's way, right. she made her husband think that he wore the pants. That's right. Everyone was happy. My mom sent me to college in the South so that I could learn how to do that, and I didn't.
2: <laughs> what is the name of
0: that class? I don't know. She thought just living in New Orleans, I would pick it up from the Southerners. How'd that work out for you? Uh, Well, college was fun, but (laughs) I didn't gain that knowledge.
2: (laughs) So, little Margaret grew up a much-loved child high on a hill of huge houses with giant lawns. Hers was a bright red with yellow trim. I would love that.
0: And her mom put purple and orange flowers in the lawn. That's just awesome. Out on Martha's Vineyard, there's a whole Baptist campground area with um, gingerbread houses painted in these absolutely fantastic color combinations, it would fit in there very well.
2: This is Technicolor before technicolor.
0: Yeah, Technicolor.
2: <laughs> so one day, little two-year-old Peggy was running around playing with her cat when the skirt of her little dress caught on fire. This is no joke. Her six-year-old brother, Stevens, ran in and managed to beat out all the flames. This was
0: before Stop, Drop, and Roll. Yeah, she wasn't hurt in it. However, it scared the poo out of Mama. Who decided that the easiest solution to this problem was to put her in pants? You
2: know, not at grandma's or anything. Right,
0: not out in public. She kept the dresses for special occasions and when yeah. she had to get out in public, but just playing in the yard, she's in pants. Margaret loved it because she was already running with the boys. She bullied her papa into
2: going downtown with her and buying her a flat cap. And everybody referred to her as Jimmy. <laughs> There was a veritable baby gang of boys and this huge strip of land, kind of like a no-man's land that you couldn't really see from the house. So if you avoided Grandma's house, where all hell was going to break loose on you, you could bootleg some shovels back there and tear it up.
0: That's, like, ideal. Can you imagine? Oh, she loved hanging with those boys. I mean, she's a tree-climbing, baseball-playing, shenanigan-acting Little girl. Well, yeah, <laughs> so and then there were
2: some some guys hanging around, some old veterans, some grandpa-like dudes that would hang out with those kids and tell them stories, and they would hear the stories from grandpa, and then they would go out and reenact battles on that Nomi. I mean, they, they would, would dig. They'd make forts.
0: They'd make tunnels she was quite a horseback rider, too. And she would ride with these guys, these old cavalry men. And as they're going along and telling their stories, their language is getting, they're cussing. They're cussing. And she picked it up. Um, I understand that for the rest of her life, the woman could cuss. Like, nobody's business. I love this image. And I, how often do we talk about women whose childhoods were like that? Nellie Bly. Yeah, pretty much.
2: child. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I've noticed as we go on further that, a lot of strong women start out by being, quote, allowed or encouraged mm-hmm. to run kind of crazy when yeah. they're young. Um, yeah, wow. Margaret Mitchell later said, at the age of six, I was completely unconcerned about being a lady. <laughs> but when she was six, it was time to put on a dress and go to school, and she made the mistake of sassing her mother about it. Why do I need to go to school? I'm just going to grow up and marry a rich man. Oh. So among her other... More traditional virtues. Mama was a suffragist. <laughs> she was a militant suffragist. She condemned women who were content to leave voting to the men. She was an officer of the Georgia Women's Suffrage League and a frequent speech giver at meetings. So this particular speech from a small six year old child was, let's say, not going to fly. No. So mama hauled that child out to the Jonesboro road and showed her all the wrecked-up skeletons of all the
0: big great houses from the war and told her people who had lived in this wonderful life, these beautiful homes, had it ripped away from them, and she did not want, when Margaret's life, the bottom fell out, she wasn't prepared. She wanted Margaret to grow up and be strong enough to handle anything and survive anything that life threw her way. And she said the
2: strength of women's hands is worth absolutely nothing, but what they've got in their heads will get them as far as they need to go. Such a vivid memory that later... Rhett Butler basically says the exact dang speech <laughs> to Scarlett on the Jonesboro Road, the one that leads to Tara. I, this is, must be very important. Oh,
0: absolutely. And the more you know about her life is that you can see it mm-hmm. in the novel. Well, and
2: a lot of people have said, you know, technically most of the characters aren't based on anyone, but people who knew her mother said that Rhett Butler kind of is her mother. There's a little element in Scarlett's mother of an aspect of her mother's personality, but largely it's Rhett. Oh, I can totally see Isn't that. Isn't that funny? Yeah. So, Little Peggy did go to school and became a voracious reader and writer. This Even this was kind of full of conflict. Papa paid her 5 or 10 or 15 cents to read the classics. Um, Jane Austen was in the 10-cent class. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she
0: said she'd rather get a beating than read Austen. I am so with you. I'm <laughs> sorry. Jane nights are after me now. <laughs> well
2: had I read them. Well, I loved them, Austinites, and you didn't have to pay me a dime to read them either. (laughs) So, Mama, this is the self, Mama said, fill your head with knowledge. Yes, but do not let your dang back touch the back of a chair. And off to deportment classes with you. And it was like the Clash of the Titans. It was... You know, Papa made the money and just beamed happily at everyone and was largely absent. But woo! Mama and Peggy were so much alike. She kind of mourned that Mama had higher expectations of her because the rest of her friends' mothers were not so insistent on book learning and handling yourself. And most of her friends' parents were like, don't worry, just learn to be a lady. Marry a man. Mm -hmm. It'll all be all right. But her mom wouldn't let her rest that way. Well. she's like, dang it. Well. I'm the wrong (laughs) gumball. You know? (laughs) So the family moved to prestigious Peachtree Street. Quote, 74% of the social register lives here. (laughs) I don't know where they got the 26%, huh? <laughs> so, typical of a girl of her upbringing, off to finishing school at Washington uh, Seminary, the very, very best, unless she were sent north to boarding school, where the local mean girls kept her out of the sorority, so she made her own group, the Theatrical and Literary Society. So, emos. there. Who was more famous? The emos.
0: Kind of the emos. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, um. This, I have to tell you, at this point in her life is when she starts to remind me of you. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, that was you, right? Yeah, kind of. I don't right? I don't want to say you were an oddball, but you were an independent thinker, and you were comfortable with yourself, and you hung with a heavy eyeliner-wearing theater crowd. Oh, well, yeah.
2: Well, uh, I have to say some of her stories that she wrote were hmm. filled with PG-13 material. <laughs> I guess, luckily, she was 14. <laughs> right. But whatever. Really? She had a vivid imagination. Yes, that's what happened. So, Atlanta uh, burned... Yet again, in 1917. This time it was not, in fact, the Yankees. It was just a pile of old mattresses. Well, that's glorious. But Mama and Margaret and all the other ladies bountiful helped the less fortunate and fed all the soldiers who came to keep the peace. It was good practice for what happened just afterward. The United States declared war on Germany in 1916, and Atlanta was a major training hub. Uh, The town was just full of young men.
0: From all over. From
2: all over. And it was Margaret's senior year in high school. The duty of every young man is to go to war. Right. The duty of all young women is to cheer them up and remind them what they were defending. And rarely has an obligation and an inclination met so beautifully. Can you imagine? Parties. Dances. Full dance cards. Twelve men sitting around you on the porch. Sound familiar? No kidding. Mama kept up a social whirl at the house, and Margaret and her brother hosted parties at the Piedmont Driving Club, ha-cha-cha, or the roof of the Capital City Club. It's, it's a rooftop garden. Japanese lanterns and music playing, and the breeze
0: is blowing. I mean, the romanticness. Oh, and for a girl who is, has an extremely large imagination... To begin with, you can get carried away. Well, it was widely
2: acknowledged that Margaret was the most popular girl in Atlanta. The belle of the ball. She was so funny as heck and dry and a great listener. And, uh, you know, she was comfortable. I mean, she grew up with servants. She grew up with money. She doesn't worry about anything. She was just a joy to be around. So many young men on the verge of, like, the scary ordeal of war just fell hopelessly (laughs) in love with her. Margaret had what Clara Bow later had. It was it. But the funny thing is, she was so shy, but she kept it all inside. She was
0: pretending to be an extrovert. Again, reminded me of Beckett Graham. Yeah, that's totally true. I I won't do this the whole time, but I'm just going to say it right now. (laughs) So, uh, Margaret did indeed pick one from the sea of men. A young lieutenant named Clifford Henry. He was an upper-class New York Harvard man. Blonde, blue-eyed. He was 22 and headed to war... And he was as smitten with Margaret as she was with him. And they were soon engaged.
2: He gave her a giant heirloom engagement
0: ring. Which brought Papa
2: out of his library. Have you, have you heard boo of Papa? This no, whole time? he's been very not quiet for 17 in the background, just
0: funding everything.
2: And now he's, like, stomping around, looking at all these strangers in the house, muttering, who are his people? Who are these people? <laughs> um, poor Papa. He had another blow coming. Maybell took Peggy up north to enroll her in Smith College. The trip itself didn't bother him. Museums, Broadway, shopping, visiting the Waldorf fine fine, here's some money. That's proper lady behavior, but college, that's ruination for a girl and he wrung his hands and
0: but mama was firm. And she had she had Margaret's life planned out from the moment that child was born and having a good education was foremost in her plans.
2: And the north was hard for her. But I have a little message for Margaret. Um, you're planning to marry into old New York. I'm just saying if if now you're having a hard time, I, there's, there's a small red know, flag on a toothpick I'm waving
0: right now. At one time she's up north and she's she's meeting all these people in society and she says, "It's barber's country. It's money, money, money that counts." <laughs> Yeah, where did you come from? I think it's money, 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 the counted in the South, but you kept he it on the south. Yeah, you didn't talk about it. Yeah. Exactly. Socially at Smith, she did very well. Academically, and not so great. Later, Margaret
2: Mitchell claimed she went to college to study psychiatry, and really there was just time for the hijinks part. There wasn't enough time to have had any academic achievement because school was cancelled for the armistice which Mm -hmm. was a great celebration and it should have been cancelled but then it was cancelled again because there was a Spanish flu epidemic so really the actual availability of classes to have even gone to was pretty low combined with her motivation for attending them which was also very very low low. I don't know how much academic achievement you know the the numbers just didn't add up it wasn't going to work out (laughs) No, um, two bad things happened. The fiance Henry died. Later, she was to say this was the love of her life at seventeen.
0: Possible Romeo and Juliet pulled it off. Much yeah, younger. You never forget your first. And she did send flowers to his parents on the anniversary of his death for the next forty years or so. so. Man,
2: so Margaret Mitchell was just getting settled back at school uh, from Christmas when she got the news that her mother had contracted the spanish flu and her
0: father wanted her to come home now so she raced back to atlanta but she was too late but mama had left her a letter she starts it off by saying oh i'm sure you heard from your dad and i'm not that bad i just have pneumonia it's no big deal but she does go on to tell margaret how to live her life and the first time i read this letter i i missed just a few words and it changed the entire meaning of the letter I read it as saying, give of yourself fully to your husband and your family, but there is a line in here, um, but I must warn you of one mistake that a woman of your temperament might fall into. Give of yourself with both hands and overflowing heart, which is what I read, and then I missed this, but give only the excess after you have lived your own life. That's, I mean, that changes the whole meaning of the letter. Well, now,
2: Maman never did exactly follow her own advice. Margaret took over as hostess at the house, and yes, the 74% came to the funeral. The fellow suffragists came, but factory workers farmhands, other humble people came in droves who told Margaret Mitchell stories of her mother had helped their children go to school. Medicine was brought to the sick, advice and prayers and hope. And this veritable river of, quote, Negroes, as the proper word was then, came through the kitchen and they didn't have much, but they brought like a little food and their tears and they wanted to grab Margaret's hand and tell her that her mother had been a great lady. You guys, oh my, this is just Ellen. This is in Ellen. I was wondering
0: where you were going because my head was going, that's Ellen. Yeah.
2: But can you imagine, you're just expecting to serve some cucumber sandwiches and chat politely, but instead you get this river of people telling you things you really didn't know fully about your own mother. Yeah. I just don't know how you'd hold it together. So Margaret always maintained that she came home as a dutiful daughter to keep house for her father, but, you know, giving up her education was following her own wishes now. College Margaret was exactly like six-year-old Margaret, and now there's no one to haul her out to the Jonesboro Road and read her The Riot Act. So now she came out into society so uncomfortable with it at first that I think maybe she overcompensated. (laughs)
0: It's a time in history when going wild was kind of a thing.
2: Well... She was soon called the Rebel Deb. I mean, there's low-cut gowns, there's smoking, there's shocking interviews with the press. The press, you're not supposed to be there unless you're dead or getting married. (laughs) Running afoul of all the matrons, you know, and capping it off with this performance art piece, (laughs) shall we say. It's called the Apache Dance, actually, since it's French. It would be Le Danse Apache. And it's kind of a French tango. Well, however you say it, it's... It's basically an episode of domestic violence set to music. So,
0: Plus, she's got bells on her garter.
2: So yes. she's like jingling the whole time. So I am looking and looking to find an episode of this that is suitable to put, really, in a non-explicit podcast
0: uh-huh. show note.
2: <laughs> so uh, we will provide you with a link to Popeye and Bluto and Olive Oil doing it. <laughs> so you can see in a G-rated scenario what it looks like. In cartoon form, and I think it's really only acceptable to me because, functionally, it's Popeye and Bluto doing it, (laughs) which seems more acceptable. Uh, It was shocking. I mean, even now, you'd be like, whoa, sister, what are you doing? Um, Well, it did
0: earn her a lot of press.
2: And it earned her a big black ball from the Junior League, which she gave approximately zero poos about. That's right. And her romantic life was the stuff of legend. This was the era of flaming youth and all but hurling
0: themselves at her feet. It was like a, it was a pile of swains. Bose plural, B-E-A-U-X. X, X, X. -X. X. There wasn't X, X, X. (laughs) No, there wasn't. It was more Just on that dance.
2: Yeah, yeah. So (laughs) once she was juggling five kind of serious boyfriends, as far as I know, they all knew each other. And they all knew what was going on. I, this whole willing to battle for the attention of one girl, I don't know. I don't think it happens anymore, but whatever. She's totally tiny. 4'11, 100 pounds, huge gray eyes, um, not bobbed hair, by yeah. the way. She didn't, she wasn't completely sure about the
0: ladylikeness of that, which cracks me up. It's like, well, oh, but she'll do that dance. And she, in her formal portraits for her debutante season, she's wearing what was at the time a very low cut dress. It was a square yeah. neckline. It's, right now. Yeah, yeah, you're showing more now. And she did, but she
2: said, all men are putty in my hands, but she also viewed marriage as a trap. And her dad kept saying, please, can we put an end to this kind of scandalous behavior? He wasn't forceful. Please, can we just... And
0: this, he pick somebody. He did it for a while.
2: Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. the Apache dance, guess what his comment was? Well, that was very strenuous, <laughs> he said.
0: <laughs> he must have meant the kiss at the end when she's like dipped over backwards. I, you know, know. I have a little
2: space in my heart for Papa saying that word of all the words he could have chosen. <laughs> um, so he was kind of pressuring her to get married and she said, look, if you mess with me, I'm going to elope with the very next man that passes by. And maybe
0: that's what happened. <laughs> She narrowed the field of suitors down to two men, Red Upshaw and John Marsh. His roommate. His roommate. And two completely opposites. I mean, it's like she picked from pile A and pile B. Red was really the bad boy, and John was really quite Respectable. Well Here's how Margaret's friends described Red Upshaw.
2: He's a man with no money, no personality, no character, no presence, no style, and
0: no looks. Doesn't he sound like a prize? I know. <laughs> uh, and he was psychotic and unstable. Were two other words that were used to describe him.
2: Well, her papa always had a fear that she would run away with the garbage man, so
0: I guess this is what happened. She ran away with the garbage man. Although he was from Atlanta society, I mean, he was an Atlantan, and his family did have some money, but he was not well-bred, I guess is a good way to put it.
2: Yeah, and I think she married to get away from home, and I think she married to get away from housekeeping, because I think she was tired of taking the role of her mother, being in charge of social occasions, keeping up with the charity work, you know, that kind of thing. She, society's easily shocked. There was a whole column about how she carried red roses at her wedding. Okay, that's what shocks
0: you? Yeah. And the two years of dating roommates was fine? They, they were suitors. They were calling on her. She would come home from one date, and the next guy would be waiting right there for her. Weirdos. Yeah. And he was, <laughs> you know what? At her wedding, I mean, John, Mr. Runner-Up, was the best fan. It's like the Charlottetown Twins and Scarlet sitting on the
2: porch all over again. I guess somebody's got to win. But anyway, as anyone could have told you with his resume, Red Upshaw was no provider or comfort or any dang thing except a big old fat albatross around her neck. It's like Charles Hamilton and Scarlett. Why are you being a schlub? Uh, I married to get out of this house and now I got you. Great. So she started writing for the newspaper and it was pretty shameful oh. from his perspective to have a working wife. It wasn't something properly bred young women did at the time. So the women of society might have blackballed her, but the men really rallied. I mean, they've known her all her life, and they they gave her a job, and her father lost the rest of his hair. Um, (laughs) But any bill might do this for a little diversion. Things were changing, kind of just like Lady Edith in Downton Abbey. Mm -hmm. Aristocratic young women were appearing in the papers in the society and magazine sections, of course, She wrote the Gossip and Advice column under a pen name. Uh, She did write book reviews. She was in charge of the captions for the baby pictures, which is hilarious because she hated babies. (laughs) And um, after a while, she ultimately ended up writing 120
0: articles pretty large articles on some very serious subjects. Yeah, she's doing investigative journalism here. She's, she's covering murders, and she's rappelling down the sides of buildings. She's working very hard to get the story. She's getting right into the center of the action, to get the information so she can put it into her story. But guess what
2: she couldn't do? She was not allowed to look up words in the dictionary because her skirts were too short, and when she had to stand on a stool and bend over the dictionary, she was a distraction to the men in the newsroom. If she needed a word looked up, she was to ask a man to look it up for her. <laughs> and then she found out that the male reporters that were doing her same job were paid more, and she kind of said, hey, what's to deal with that? And... They were at least honest with her. They said, You have a husband. They don't.
0: Mm-hmm. That response
2: lasted for well past the 20s, that's for sure. I think it lasted through the 70s. Uh, yeah. She wrote a lot about the role of women. Should they work? What about motherhood? Should they seek adventure? Ought they to be a credit to their families? Should they stay behind a curtain on a pedestal? It was kind of a big conflict and own marriage, speaking of writing about women's issues, was a just horrible joke. Mr. Margaret was a bad guy. You know, off bootlegging and then when he came home he would he would beat her senseless.
0: Uh-huh. So they did get divorced. And she runs off to Cuba for a while to get her act together. I guess I mean, she's an adventurous soul. She's not just staying at home and pining in the closet and wishing something different for her life. She's going out on an adventure, which is a nice transition to another phase of her life.
2: She did complain about, like, eyeballs straying where they oughtn't and fingers straying where they oughtn't. And I'm like, well, you know, you're not in the South anymore, darling. Well, you are. You are. You're further South. south. <laughs> but even though it was a very short period of time, I almost think that the trip to Cuba most important thing it did for her is to kind of put in her head a little no-place-like-home feeling, Mm -hmm. and she did. She came back kind of a little, like, satisfied that she'd done it, but glad it was over. Right. I think. Now, two months after her divorce was final, she married John Marsh... Got it right. The other man in that unlikely love triangle, and they moved into an apartment building that they nicknamed the dump. The dump. It doesn't look
0: like so much anymore I a know. Dump. Well, maybe it was. Maybe it's been fixed up. Yeah, because it's a museum now.
2: Well, the kitchen was made out of the bedroom closet, so that's a little <laughs> unusual. Quite a come down from her father's house. But she loved it. Oh, well, it was her house with this
0: man that isn't going to beat the crap out of her. Well, and
2: for another thing, John let her crank the heat up as high as she wanted, and he did not peep about the cost of heating oil. He's a one in a million husband, <laughs> yeah. dude. Um, so she could do no wrong as far as he was concerned. Does that sound like someone else we know? I uh, know. Uh, why, why she didn't pick him in the first place? Maybe she had to get it out of her system. Maybe. What a waste of time to have chosen the wrong man, Scarlet. but we're back on track now so she's writing and writing and writing though most of her work during this time period she burnt or
0: her estate burnt it
2: but it was not until she injured her ankle in 1926
0: that things start to happen this would be a good time to take a little break and when we come back we will talk about the creation of her one and only novel
2: This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks with hundreds of new titles added every month. For you, the listeners of The History Chicks, Audible is offering a free download so you can try out their service. To go along with this episode, what else but Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind? It might be one way, if you've only seen the movie, to experience the book without being completely overwhelmed. It's 49 hours of audio, though, so I hope you have a lot of yard work or running to do. This could take you through until spring. Or maybe The Help by Katherine Stockett, which does mention Gone with the Wind at least four times, and was billed by Skeeter Phelan as the story from Mammy's side, and is still my favorite personal download from Audible. To receive your free audiobook download today, please visit audibletrial.com slash or, more easily, just follow the
0: link on our website, thehistorytix.com. And thank you. And we are back. Margaret Mitchell is laid up in bed with a broken ankle. She's
2: laid up on a green velvet sofa <laughs> with
0: a broken ankle. Okay. In the dump. She is bored. She is spiraling into a depression. She's got no stimulus other than books that John's bringing her. Okay, luckily, she had two servants to do the work. Two servants. In the dump. And
2: this house could (laughs) hold, what, four to six servants, but guess how many it has? That would be zero. I don't understand why we're putting so much pressure on ourselves. When people in the dump had two servants. (laughs) I'm
0: just saying, modern
2: women... You see the light bulb on my are head? ...are putting too much pressure on ourselves.
0: Completely agree.
2: No wonder we can't do it all. We all own our perfect Pinterest houses. We're missing four to six assistants. Anyway, she was bored. <sighs> she was yes. very bored. Um, the legend
0: is that he emptied out everything but the math section at the library. Okay. So finally he said, stop reading and start writing. I don't think we said this, but when she became a journalist, she didn't know how to type. She got the job by lying about her ability on a Remington. But right now, she can do more than search for the key. She can use two whole fingers (laughs) to type. Well, people use two whole thumbs to type
2: all the time in modern America. I'm going to write a
0: novel on my phone. Only with your thumbs.
2: I can't do that. My fingernails are too long. Oh, they are. I I type with this one finger. On your phone? Uh Uh-huh huh, I don't use, I don't know how you can type with your thumbs. That seems like your thumb bends the wrong way. I have to go
0: back through and take out all the periods in the middle of sentences. (laughs) Anyway.
2: Well, the fact is, suddenly the muse spoke to her. So, with the encouragement of John, the fire was lit in the mornings before anyone came over. There she was, in the corner of the living room, furiously typing away, evidently, with two fingers. It's a little table. It's a little folding, ramshackly, nondescript table. Go back to Austin. uh, Yes, we're going to have to post that picture again. Jane Austen's table, this little octagon of nothing, was the source of all this amazing material. And same with Gone with the Wind. The desk is not impressive.
0: Now, she did start a couple other stories and scrapped them before she had this inspiration. I mean, it is so hard to figure out what really happened because Margaret Mitchell was a storyteller. So anything that she said after the fact might have been embellished or hyperbolized. That's true. <laughs> so, legend has it that one day she remembered back to her mother's tour of the burned homes. Quickly came up with not only a main character, but a plot. And she quickly wrote the first draft of a story of Pansy O'Hara. And she wrote it backwards. She wrote the last chapter first. The last chapter in case you don't remember, because who does, starts with the death
2: of Melanie. Mm -hmm. So the darkest chapter, okay, she's in a great amount of pain. She's on the green velvet sofa, or, you know, in the corner. Red Mm -hmm. leaves, Melanie dies. It's not a happy situation, so that's where it all began. That's the only chapter that anyone still has, by the way, and it's (laughs) framed on the walls of the museum that the dump has become. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the only chapter left. But as the years went on this book, and her work upon it became kind of a joke among her friends she should be typing along, and somebody would pop in, nobody knocked, and she had this bath towel that she would just fling over the typewriter. What's under the bath towel, Margaret? And she'd be like, nothing, shut up, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> and so she would ram completed sections into these manila envelopes and kind of throw them under the sofa. And so everyone would ask her, how's that, quote, great American novel? So she would ask back, how's your great American novel? Because frankly, half the people she knew were writing the great American novel, so it was good <laughs> cover for her. So she worked with lots of interruption. Um, she'd get an idea for a scene and just kind of dash it out unconnected to anything yet. I mean, just, I gotta get the sun paper in. So it wasn't really connected, but she flushed it out not in order at all.
0: The, her method kind of sort of reminds me of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, which is based on a series of photographs. And they're actually in the story, and And Ransom Riggs, the author, connected all these seemingly obscure photographs that aren't connected to this amazing, quite possibly one of my favorite stories ever, story. So, it's kind of like that. That's amazing. I know. She had a good story for why
2: she did the last chapter first, though. This actually made complete sense to me. She said, when you are a newspaper reporter, the first paragraph says, something happened. Mm -hmm. And then, how and why did this happen? So that's exactly what she did. This mm. happened. Melanie died. Rhett left. She came to a realization. Now let's tell you how it happened. Mm-hmm. That actually made a lot of sense to me. Oh, no, it does. Well, now she worked on the book for two years, three years, seven years, or ten years. <laughs> she said them all in interviews. But the upshot is, all but the first chapter, which ended up being the last chapter she wrote, did sit for ten years.
0: Very few eyes on it.
2: She showed John a few chapters, but she said she she was afraid of his red pen. But the fact is, I think she was afraid of her own red pen.
0: Mm -hmm. I think she didn't
2: like rereading it. She didn't want anyone talking about it.
0: No. She purged it, so why revisit it? Because it was probably better in her head, she's thinking. Yeah. So the Macmillan Publishing Company sent a man around the country to
2: scout out books. They'd done it in Britain with great success. They thought, well, here we are. Let's just send a man around. Well, his first stop was Atlanta. And everyone knew about this great American novel. Everyone had seen pieces of it falling out of the pot and pan cupboard. So the scuttlebutt was, hey... Get Margaret to drive you around and tell you about her great American novel. And, of course, he'd be like, so tell me about this thing. She goes, I don't have anything. I don't know what they're talking about. You know what finally got her to send it in?
0: There was an extremely obnoxious young writer that she was driving around, and that's what she did while this man was in town. Um, She drove writers to and from. She was kind of a hostess for Atlanta for this, almost like a writer's conference, you'd think um, so she's driving around this particularly obnoxious young writer and she's exhausted and she's tr- stressed and she's seeing all these people in her car, all these other writers who don't haven't perfected the craft as much as she believes that she has. She's writing it, and she lets it slip that she has a novel in the works and the author says, Peggy, what? You're writing a book? I wouldn't take you for the type who would write a successful book. She said,
2: oh, you're so funny. Well, I have written a book, and it's going to win the Pulitzer. It's been rejected by the best publishers. I can't believe if you have a book, which seems to like a surprise to mm-hmm. me, <laughs> that you haven't even sent
0: it anywhere. Patronizing her. Yeah. So she races home. She grabs up as many of those envelopes as she possibly can. She rushes down to the hotel where Latham, that's the man that's Harold Latham, um, is staying. She throws them at him and says, Take the damn thing before I change my mind.
2: Seventy manila envelopes full of things. Can you imagine his surprise? What? Uh, thank you. Yeah. I guess. thought you had Uh,
0: nothing, but okay. Evidently you have seven inch thick envelopes of things. This is a hot mess, I can tell you right now, but okay, I'll take it. You seem very charming. You've (laughs) driven me around. I like you, so I'll take a look at it. So he took it away, and once he was unreachable,
2: of course, you know, she'd cooled down. He do a lot in anger that you might not do. Once she cooled off, she really regretted it, not the least of which because she didn't get the stuff out of the pot and pan cupboard. (laughs) She forgot to get stuff out of several other hiding places, so generally what he had was, like, a lot of disconnected, unlabeled pieces of a book most of which was sitting back in her house in assorted drawers. Dang it. So she telegraphed him. Look, send, send it back. I like, changed my mind. And then his basic response was, although this is hard to put in a telegram,
0: la, 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 I cannot yeah. hear you, la, la, la. <laughs>
2: That's probably not what he sent back. But he said, this is a book of tremendous importance. He read some on the train. He was captivated. He's like, I just can't stop reading this. By July, she had a contract, and her immediate response was to put a gold towel on her forehead, which is very
0: southern of her. <laughs> I love that she got her first contract, and she went through it. I mean, this is a standard contract that they used for every author, and she sends it back with a six-page written corrections and, and things that she just doesn't want to do, and they're like, hey, honey, this is okay. And they send her an almost identical contract, and she signs it.
2: Well, she got a little bit of advice, like, look, you, this is, everybody signs this. It's how it is. Mm -hmm. You're a new writer. You can't be dictating terms. We're not a fly-by-night operation like Knopf, which is cracking me up, Julia Child's publisher. Yeah. They were rivals, you know. You can trust us with this contract. And they were very reputable. So, they changed Scarlett's name from Pansy
0: during the process. Yeah, they're like, you know, up north, the name Pansy isn't going to ring true. It means something entirely, what you don't mean. Yeah. You use that word, but you don't know what it means.
2: <laughs> um, so, some of the titles that were rejected for this book during the process.
0: Tomorrow is Another Day, Bugle Sang True, Baba Black Sheep. That was the favorite, believe it or not. Yeah. Tote the weary load, not in our stars. But finally, she gets the title from a poem that says, I have forgotten much, Sonara gone with the wind. So when the book, at last, came out, it was um, pretty expensive. Uh, in modern
2: day money, brace yourself for this. Now keep in mind, it's a hardback, so it makes a little more sense. It was
0: upwards of $40. Now you have to remember, the country is deep in a depression at this point. Money is not flowing for anybody and yet this book flew off the shelves it was a complete hit
2: people would race to reach the end, and they grieved that it was over. Oh, why do I have no more book to read? It
0: was great. You have to think, those books that you read that you're like, oh, this is too short. Well, (laughs) Gone with the Wind wasn't too short.
2: No, it was a thousand pages. Yeah.
0: But Margaret Mitchell was mortified that everyone
2: that talked to her about it, they were talking about Southern pride, and she called it Lavender and Old Lace, and she's kind of shocked. Like, are they not reading it? Because I really laid it out, how it was. Now, admittedly, she did not include the darker elements of especially slavery, mm-hmm. race relations, There, mm-hmm. you know, there's no whipping. It's not a non-fiction book.
0: Right. It's anyway. not a history of the Civil War. It's the perspective of the Civil War from a Southern woman's perspective. From one from person's perspective. Although the the voice is an omniscient point of view, so the narrator gets into everybody's head. It's not just Scarlett's opinion. Yeah.
2: Reviewers generally raved, but when they didn't, they sure didn't. But it's it's really, they said, just like what is happening to us during the Depression. People related a lot. Things were so good minutes ago. And now there's a threat of war, and we're all poor, and it really resonated with a lot of people. So perfect timing helps, I think, with regard to this. So maybe the 10-year wait was good. Yeah. Um, Gave people a little motivation to read it. You know, many people compared her to Dickens in talking about, you know, real life. They're icons. Even then, Scarlet, Rhett, the barbecue at 12 Oaks, Mammy, Tara. That's a big one. Yeah. Tara is an icon. Kind of like, see, gratuitous reference or not, it's like Harry Potter and Hogwarts. Harry Potter is now part of our world, whether we like him or don't like him. You know who it is. You know what he looks like. You know his basic story. Hogwarts Castle. If you've never even seen it, you know where that is. People cried when Scarlet discovered 12 Oaks burnt to the ground. People cried. I cried during movie 8 when Hogwarts got destroyed. It's just (laughs) a building, but it gets into your heart, Mm -hmm. I think. When people complained about the racial stereotypes in the book, she was genuinely surprised and said, they're the most honorable people in this whole entire book. And they are, you know, the source of most of the controversy then and now. You know, Mammy, Pork, Dilsey, Prissy, Big Sam, Uncle Peter are all kind of stock characters. Yeah. But I think that's just a factor of her not maybe being so familiar with
0: the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, she grew up listening to... Her white relatives, the Yankees are villains in this story, and, you know. And everybody else is on the same side. Yeah, that's right. The right <laughs> side. I don't understand. They're just
2: being mean to us. Yeah. So, the book came out in June of 1936, and by July, producer David O. Selznick had bought the movie rights for $50,000, which is 850000 today. So, you know, these days, I thought it would have been written in a contract, but I guess The Hunger Games, it took
0: five months from the book to come out to the film rights to be lost. So that shows how much I know. No, there's there's provisions in the contract for when it happens, but it's not going to happen to every novel that comes out. And it could be, I mean, I think five months is pretty fast. It could be longer. Well, okay.
2: So, anyway, I just thought, now, what? Man, these days it wouldn't take that long, but I guess it does. There was a big challenge ahead. Margaret Mitchell refused to mess with it. This book will never be made into a picture. It took me ten years to fit it into a book. There's no... How are you going to do it into a movie? Exactly. So, eleven official writers, many unpaid consultants, and three years later, by which time the public was really, really ready for a movie... They finally had a working, that's in quotes, working script, at least one that was (laughs) they could go forward with. Some cuts were easy. Well, we can talk about the differences, but two of Scarlett's children are gone. Um, Some servants were gone, some relatives, you know. That's just narrative economy. Many, 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 many movies do not include all the characters. You know, you give somebody else a line, it's
0: just, like, too hard to explain who that person is. Right. That's an easy one. That's how you cut the a thousand page book down to a mere three and a half hours. But there were some things,
2: notably the Ku Klux Klan, most definitely in the book, but yeah. absolutely
0: absent from the movie. Yeah, there's a lot more grit in the book. And I had never read the book until we decided to do this. I'd only seen the movie several times, but. See, like I said in the beginning, I think most people have seen the movie and not yeah. read the book. Yeah. And I'm kind of glad that I did it that way, although when you open up the novel, the first line you read is it just totally changed it made me think, okay, this is going to be different, because I think of Scarlet as being gorgeous Vivian Lee. The first line of the book is "Scarlet was not beautiful," but men seldom realized it when they were caught by her charms. I kind of think that's Margaret Mitchell. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well now, it was the
2: little things they worried about cutting. And honestly, they were worried that fans would be bothered, probably right. Like, for example, Vivian Lee's eyes are not green, like Scarlett O'Hara's. That is actually a filter that they put on any close-up. They ignored it during the further scenes, and they really went back in and Mm hand-colored her eyeballs. Right. Because it was such a big part of her character. Now, Harry Potter producers handled it completely differently. It's a major plot point that Harry has green eyes, but guess what they did? They just ignored the whole thing. I don't know why. Why does everybody have to have green eyes? It's like
0: 1% of the population. And we could actually fill an entire podcast or longer on minutiae and trivia and the making of this movie. That's There's true. so much.
2: Let's just go back a little bit. Finally, you know, they, they had this technically working script. They felt like they might be able to start shooting, getting ready to go. And Selznick pretty much forced director Victor Fleming off of Wizard of Oz to come direct... His movie, instead, both had a no-place-like-home theme, and the heroines didn't realize till the end, land -hmm. doesn't mean anything, you know, said Scarlet, like, Kansas is black and white, says Dorothy. And at the end, they're like, there's no place like home, slash (laughs) Tara. So anyway, Victor Fleming wasn't the first director, but he was kind of the one that had the most footage,
0: let's just Mm say. He got the credit for it. They didn't shoot in order, which is, I think, pretty consistent with the way they make movies now. But just the way this whole thing was put together... It's just like hanging on the back of a train with a string. You know, hold on! Victor Fleming did have a nervous breakdown, I put that in quotes, and he had to step off towards the end.
2: So they built Terra,
0: and they built the interior only of 12 Oaks. They didn't build
2: ceilings because, who cares, no ceilings. Grander than Versailles was 12 Oaks, snorted the historical consultant, who thought, what? Are you
0: doing very, very ornate, especially 12 Oaks? Yeah, and Tara looks, in your head, when you read the book, it looks nothing like the actual Tara that you have in your mind because of the movie. It's like, what? Because it was ramshackle. You know, they... They had added pieces as as, as it went, as they got more money and...
2: Details were obsessing him, even those that people wouldn't see. Like, the embroidery on the underwear of the cast. The way the fields had to be planted in a curved line instead of a straight line. Because back in the day, you know, thank God I kept those round columns off Terra And they were square like they're supposed to be. But large problems, like
0: casting, were unaddressed okay this is what we're going to do when we make the movie we're not even gonna think about who's in it but uh, Clark gable had
2: in fact been cast as Brett Butler due partly to the fact that a fan poll gave him twice as many votes as the guy in second place um Don amici who you should probably google you know he's in trading places as an old guy he's one of the partners that Eddie mm-hmm. Murphy switches with he's not dangerous enough looking I mean Clark gable had this dark dirty rock star yeah you know come on yeah. That's Ruck Baller. Right oh, absolutely. And but Errol Flynn was considered Gary Cooper. And Margaret Mitchell favored Basil Rathbun. I'm like, just, that, yeah. you need more <laughs> macho, yo. <laughs> Nobody named
0: Basil is going to be <laughs> macho enough. <laughs> oh, Basil, Basil. <laughs> Whatever. I guess no, Clark well. is kind of just as bad, though. Oh, Clark. I don't know. I'm Clark. I'm, I'm uh, jaded by the... Vacation movies. Oh, as well. that's true. <laughs> okay, so there
2: had been a two-year, very publicity-heavy hunt for Scarlet. The same fans in the poll, they were asked who they wanted, and it was Miriam Hopkins. Yeah. Now we don't know who that is. Now, I will say in the 30s, she had a lot, a lot, a lot of movies. She was heavily exposed right then. And it might seem natural, like someone you see every
0: Saturday at the movies. Hey, you know. Let's put her in something else. There was a long list of women that were considered, um, including Lucille Ball, <laughs> Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, Jean Harlow, Katherine Hepburn, Lana Turner. But they did this publicity stunt. We're going to find Scarlett. Letters by the thousands were pouring in to Selznick saying, I am your Scarlet. You know, he had to hire extra security because all these women were flocking to the studio going, I'm Scarlet, I'm Scarlet. In that poll, Vivian Lee got one vote.
2: One vote. So that just tells you what the public knows. Now, there's no Ashley yet either, and there's no Melanie. So we're supposed to start shooting right now, sir. Tick tock, tick tock, sir. So, what scene might you shoot with 75% of the main characters missing? Well, it was time to shoot the burning of Atlanta, evidently, because, uh, we don't have all of our people. So they opened with a scene that might well have blown the rest of the budget. Before the first Fiddle DD ever came out, all seven existing Technicolor cameras were used to film this, so I don't quite know what was happening over at the Wizard of Oz area. <laughs> <laughs> we were also trying to use some of the cameras.
0: There might have been some deal. Maybe... Well, and it wasn't... They didn't have to take them for very long. No, no, no. Yeah. It was, it was like you, a couple you nights. Gotta, yeah, you gotta do this in one shot. Maybe there because, was a gentleman's agreement. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: Mr. Detail refused to just burn a miniature thing. It would be faking and wrong, he said. So they dragged the lot for old sets, and they slapped fake frontages on them, including the sets from King Kong. Well, yeah. That is what you're seeing <laughs> it's, it's, burning. Faye <laughs> Ray's King Kong, like Island Temple, Yeah, has a fake front on it, and it's burning right before your eyes. You know why? they got to clean up this space, because they got to film that Civil War scene, and there's stuff there. Let's just burn it up. Yeah. And the studio's like, Excellent idea. And they're free. They set all that up, and it was really kind of ramshackly, like, I hope this doesn't fall down before it catches fire. But yet, they hired a historical consultant to make sure the numbers on the rail cars were historically accurate as to font. (laughs) You guys, the priorities might be... Font that's going to burn. In the wrong place. So the burning of Atlanta actually is not Sherman burning Atlanta, which is what I always thought. Right. It's the Confederates setting fire to all their
0: munitions so the Yankees don't get it. Right. And actually, when the movie came out, they were trying to make it don't say Atlanta's burning because it's not really burning of Atlanta. It's burning of these munitions. But
2: but it's too late because it's it's like Atlanta's on
0: fire. Yeah, it's fine now. It was a huge party.
2: Lots of friends came to watch and eat turkey a la king, which sounds revolting. <laughs> and the exoticness, brace yourself for this, spaghetti was served. Y'all, these rich movie moguls, I don't even know how they could stand it. And the producer's brother, an agent himself, showed up with his client, Lawrence Olivier, and this
0: married guy's girlfriend who is Vivian Lee? Now, the the legend says that the brother introduced her and said, "There, here is your Scarlet. But the truth is that she had launched a full-on campaign to get that role, just like a number of other actresses. Selznick knew she was coming. He had her in mind for the part, although he hadn't yet confirmed that she was going to be it. But he pretended that it was a surprise. So as Atlanta is burning... He meets his Scarlet. Isn't that dramatic? It was a good story. Yeah. He yeah. said
2: he looked over and saw her, and the flames were flickering across her porcelain visage. That the woman in the
0: car, what do you
2: think it's Scarlet, silhouetted against the flames, man. That's just a stunt man in a dress. Mm-hmm. By midnight, she's actually having an, quote, audition or screen test, and in two weeks, she had the part. Mm-hmm. That was it. Yeah. So the public kind of freaked out when a British person got cast. Like, this is an American icon. We got them back, though, because Renee Zellweger played Bridget Jones. That's right. (laughs) So back at you many years later. But we rounded up the rest of the cast. Leslie Howard just did it for the money. He hated his character of Ashley. It was a badge of honor to him that he is never going to read that dang
0: book Ever. Well, and that he used his British accent throughout the whole thing.
2: And I think Clark Gable never used a southern accent. I think he was like Red Butler from Ohio. Yeah. (laughs) But Clark Gable recommended Hattie McDaniel as Mammy. They had worked together before, and they were friends. You don't know how well-known Hattie McDaniel was before she came to this part. Mm -hmm. I mean, she'd been in 200 movies. Yeah. They were friends. She'd had these parties at her house, and people would come sometimes because they knew, hey, Clark Gable's going to be at her house. Yeah. He was a draw. Olivia de Havilland pursued the part of Melanie. Alone among all women in the world, she, Scarlet, booze, I want to be Melanie. She was contracted to another studio, but guess who she brought in? The wife
0: of the decision maker was her friend. You've got to use your network, ladies. Yep. Of everybody that's in the, in the movie, that's the one that I would have imagined the most from the book, is Olivia de Havilland. Yeah, yeah. So now... The script, which changed every dang day. David O'Selznick. Wanted to micromanage every single part of this production and the script was no exception. He would rewrite it, the pages that right before they were going to be filmed, everything was in different colors.
2: Every time a page changed, it came down a different color. So what you end up with was this horrible rainbow that the cast hated with scribble scrabble. They ran out of colors. Yeah. So, um, Vivian Lee, professional that she was, would just glance at the pages. Fine, got it, and would toss it away. Ironically, Vivian Lee was the one that fangirled out the book. She carried it around all the time, double-checking her motivation at all times, to the point where David Selznick is like, throw the damn book away. I'm sick of you with this book. It's counterproductive for her to be doing it. It's just slowing him down. I have, uh, out of a book I'll post it on the show notes or on the Pinterest, a funny picture where... They um it was so such heavy weather to make this based on all the script changes that Olivia de Havilland, they're doing the birth scene. There's a picture of Olivia de Havilland holding the book and sweating and Vivian Lee is wiping her brow. Like, oh God, this book <laughs> It's a pretty <laughs> so funny picture. Giving
0: birth is
2: getting this movie out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um so if you are within earshot of nearly anyone else in the cast, you can learn a lot of new swear words for yourself. <laughs> And the censors were putting their oars in, too. Obviously, you know, you got that line that has a naughty word in it. Um, You know what their recommendations were? Frankly, my dear, my indifference is boundless. (laughs) Frankly, my dear, I don't give a hoot. Frankly, my dear, I don't care. Put it back. They fought. They fought. In the end, they just left it in. Because the censor that they were fighting with is a man of the world. And he goes... Wouldn't it be horrible if someone didn't listen to me and left it in? And there's a giant, one of those cartoony winks. huh <laughs> Because they'd have to pay $5,000 after the fact for having left it in, which would be horrible, places back of hand <laughs> on forehead. They took the hint. They left it in. They paid the 5K. It was fine. But here are some things they did have to take out. Two days before production, they took out the N-word. Two days before production, and that was largely Hattie McDaniel. And they're like, what's the problem? White people never say it. And Hattie's like, no. Do you hear what I, no. (laughs) Okay. They checked with some other people, and it was, in fact, no, to their surprise. Well, fine. Okay. We'll change it to Durkee then. God. So I'm glad they listened to her, but I think it's funny that they called a couple of consultants to make, really? That's going to be I can't Hattie McDaniel
0: couldn't be an authority on this subject? So more on that
2: later, we're going to have a little minicast about Hattie McDaniel, in which we'll explore that particular issue in more detail. Some other things, the pain of childbirth was, that's unseemly. So you never see Scarlett having Bonnie. No. You see her in the fabulous room with the picture of Marie Antoinette on the wall. Yes you do. Yes you do. But it also, Melanie's situation was pretty critical to the plot, so you had to put it in. But they had an argument over how much sweat was on her brow. Now that's, that's too much pain, I think. Sweating. And then they're like, it's hot. Everyone's sweating. Oh! Oh, it's heat sweat and not pain sweat. Yes. Oh, then you can leave that in. Baby's obviously, evidently brought by the Starks in 1930. That's right. So also, Belle Watling was now a saloon keeper. Yeah, she's cleaned up quite a bit in the movie. And there was a scene that was cut that showed her giving water to wounded soldiers. And the reason it was cut was the censor said, no, you can't show a bad woman in a good light. That that makes it doubtful that she's really bad. You have to take out that scene. She can't be seen as charitable. She's an immoral woman. It has to stay that way. I don't know how they left in the giving of the money then, Yeah, they, they, but except for that was critical to yeah, the plot, Yeah, and they couldn't take it out. So, the filming was just chaotic and exhausting, and at one point, they ran out of money, and David Selznick had to go back and, you know, sing opera to get some more funding, mostly because he was a crazy, obsessive maniac. I mean, how many of you remember the wallpaper in Bonnie's bedroom? Do you remember what that looked like? I do not, and I have seen the movie several times. Well, David Selznick had a whole notebook of designs that he did for that wallpaper, is the level we're dealing with. Except for when we're not, because Scarlett rents to get Dr. Mead down a time-traveling street full of electric light bulbs. And Melanie's oil lamp has an electric cord on it. You know, Frank Kennedy's been, or Ashley's hurt, and he's pretended to be drunk, and he comes in the house, that scene. Her oil lamp has an electric cord dangling from the bottom. Yeah, there's a bunch of bloopers. And surprise expenses were everywhere. Speaking of the Dr. Mead scene, uh, the call was for 2,000 extras to lie there and moan, you know. Like, it's hot. We've been shot. But only
0: 800 showed up. The union said they could only have so many. And so instead of just doing it with 800, I mean, we're talking about this camera is on a huge crane. They had to build uh, support into the ground to... S- To hold this crane. So they needed the bodies to fill the space. So what they did is they used dummies. And they told the extras, move this with your foot or put your hand over it so you can move it and make it look like these dummies are squirming live men.
2: And then the extras are like, um, we need money for this dummy work then. So you need to pay us for the dummies' uh, acting abilities." So, you know, delay, delay, expense, expense, technically... The movie wrapped up in June, but the very last scene filmed for the movie was not into the fall. And it was... The very first scene. Scarlett sitting on the porch with those red-headed Tarleton twins after all of that chaos and mess. Here's what you get. War, war, war. This talk of war is spoiling every party this week. I get
0: so bored I could scream. Now, for her work... Vivian Lee received $25,000 for 125 days of work. Which, okay. But compared to what Clark Gable received, which was $120,000 for 70 days. Well, I think that's established
2: versus not established, too. Yeah, to a degree, but she worked twice as much. Yeah. And she's the star. Well, and get this, the reason that scene was filmed so late... Like, he wanted a retake. Fair enough. You know, the lighting was wrong or whatever. But he gave her a look. They were going to retake it back in July when filming wrapped up. And David O. Selznick looked at her and goes, you look old. We can't reshoot that now. I've been working 18 hours a day for how long? And you have the nerve to tell me. And he goes, go home, eat something, get a nap, come back in the fall. See if we can get you fixed up. So just keep in mind. Go get yourself pretty. Pretty. The sexism there.
0: Like, dude, bite me. So anyway, movie (laughs) post-production. Can you imagine, you know, 2014 women being plunked down? Anywhere in the past. I know. And people are, oh, this is my era. I want to live in the 40s. I want to live in the 20s. No, you don't. So movie post-production, here's
2: the thing. I've got a really good website for Technicolor history. It's quite fascinating. It was the most... Complicated process ever We'll put that link in the show notes So, here you are At a movie theater with your husband You're at a double feature You've seen the first You're ready to see the second A whole different movie And all of a sudden The curtain closes And reopens which I loved that, in the old Crest Theater in Wichita. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? I didn't remember just, in Wichita,
0: but yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah theaters, the old thing. Mm-hmm. The,
2: the velvet curtain would close. The previews would happen, la, la, la. Then the mm-hmm. curtains would close, and then they would reopen, and it would be the feature. Right. Okay, so that happens, but instead of your movie, out walks this dude.
0: You're in for a one-of-a-kind evening, says the dude, but we've got a few rules. If you don't want to stay for this movie, you can leave now, but you can't leave after the movie starts. So anybody who doesn't want to be here, skedaddle. And also,
2: this movie's a little long, so let's give you 15 minutes to call whoever's watching your children and tell them you're going to be a little late. We're good guys around here. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we'll wait for 15 minutes, and then we're going to begin. And those lucky devils were the first ones to see the rough cut of Gone with the Wind. The excitement
0: you just do not know when that title sequence came up. It crossed the screen, And the audience just cheered, because not only did, I mean, this is a beloved book, but they're going to be the first ones to see this movie that everybody has been waiting to happen. The owner
2: of that movie theater, in fact, took a little convincing, and all he said was, please let me call my wife and get her down here before you start, because I will never hear the end of it.
0: Unfortunately, that movie theater is no longer here. It's a parking lot.
2: You know what the Crest Theater is in Wichita? It's a pizza store. Aww. If they could have held off a little longer and left it vacant or something, I bet they could bring it back. It just wasn't fashionable.
0: Yeah.
2: And they all went you the way of the Modern dancing.
0: multiplexes.
2: There were guards outside the restrooms to make sure nobody used the phone to call the newspaper. That's what they're worried about, is the newspaper getting a hold of this. They do this now, those previews, by the way, and I don't know what they do about live tweeting, because that's. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder if they can block phone signals. I wish I could block phone signals half <laughs> <after laughs> the time. You can. It's called the volume. No, I mean other people's phone signals. Oh. <laughs> and the guards had little clipboards. And what they would do is they would tick off how many people visited the restrooms, which ultimately led to the intermission feature of this movie. We really do need a break there in the middle. So just like a Broadway play, you don't want to miss anything.
0: It's a very long movie. It I mean, the cut before was five hours long, and he had to. He, they said, you've got to take some out. So he took it down to three hours and, like, 40 minutes. And when he showed it, the audience said, keep everything. Don't cut it down any further.
2: So it was time at last for the premiere, the real premiere, of the final cut. Now where else are we going to do this but in Atlanta? A three-day extravaganza. Wednesday there was a parade. Of course there was.
0: Thursday was the Gone with the Wind ball. Thrown by the Junior League and not attended by Margaret Mitchell. I mean, she blackballed them.
2: Really, now? Yeah. Now, you, gonna now say? you want me? Mm. No. Absin also, of course, had McDaniel and Butterfly McQueen, and they were not welcome, but you know who was there singing in a Negro boys choir? Martin Luther King, That's age 10. Awesome. So, the governor declared December 15th a state holiday. Friday was a big day. Tickets went on sale for $10. That's a 170
0: now. That's expensive. $170. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think about even concerts, you complain with the price of going to a concert these days, but
2: so soon though they were being offered on these say, second-hand markets for $200. That's $3,000. Thanks. So the Piedmont Driving Club hosted uh, a little dinner beforehand, and Margaret Mitchell graced its doors for the first time since the days of the Apache dance. (laughs) So Lowe's Grand Theater had been transformed. It now had columns, you know,
0: just like Tara. Of course, and it's dripping and bunting. The whole town is. The bells are coming out and parading in their hoop skirts. I mean, yay, we get to wear these again.
2: (laughs) Still not invited. Hattie McDaniel. Clark Gable was making noises about boycotting, in fact, until Hattie McDaniel sent a graciously worded, well-wishing, sort of, I regretfully decline, answer to an invitation that really had never been extended to her, which seems pretty big of both stars, actually. It was big of her to diffuse, and it was big of him to object. Right. And had they shown up, they couldn't stay in the hotel, they couldn't sit with the rest of the cast. I mean... They weren't welcome at the premiere. No. So 300,000 people lined the streets to see the stars, the stars that were invited, go in and waited four hours to see them go back out, fans. You know, though, here, people just waited two days outside of an Ikea for its grand opening, which I do not get. So. I don't get that either, So four hours in that context seems kind of worth it, I guess. Now, critics were not as impressed as the public who could not get enough of it. Some critics actually said, you know, this would have been a better movie if it just had ended at the intermission. Out. Right after, what's the scene? She says, you know, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again, where you actually hear Olivia de Havilland hurling. Because yes. Vivian
0: yes. Lee couldn't hurl properly. So in post-production, <laughs> they had Olivia de Havilland making the retching noises when she ate and the vegetable hit the empty stomach. Fun fact. Yeah. I guess I could have brought this up any time in the last five minutes. But when Vivian Lee was at the premiere, she heard the band playing Dixie. And she turned to someone and said, oh, they're playing that song from the picture. <laughs> <laughs> I know there's really, I have all these trivia that there's really like no flow to put them in. But I love that.
2: Now, let's touch on something that we are going to cover more thoroughly in a minicast about Patty McDaniel. The NAACP, of course, officially hated the movie's depiction of racial stereotypes and the depiction of slaves as well-treated, childlike members of the family. And I think they need to blame the source material on this one. The movie was a sanitized version of the book. There's a whole scene with Uncle Peter where where he basically says he would never leave the family. He's not some no account free darky, blah blah blah, and you know adherence to tradition. And I even remember when I first saw the movie when Scarlett sees Big Sam and friends marching out with shovels, and everyone seems so happy to see each other. Even as a child, I thought it was just it was too much. How happy all the former field hands were to see her and to. It just yeah. seems sanitized to me. Now, don't get me started on Prissy. Even I um. cringe. <laughs> Malcolm X later said he was so embarrassed by Prissy that he wanted to crawl under the rug. But the true controversy was Hattie McDaniel's portrayal of Mammy. The NAACP went after her specially and called her an Uncle Tom. But I ask you, what was she supposed to do? Refuse to play it? These are the parts. I mean, no one's lining yes. up with offers to play presidents or scientists. Yeah, she would never be cast as Scarlett. Well, many black performers, on the contrary, thought her success in this part might open up opportunities for all and supported her wholeheartedly. She was in a pickle. She was getting it from all sides. Mm -hmm. Now, at the 12th Academy Awards, Gone with the Wind got Best Picture, Sorry, Wizard of Oz, not even nominated. Vivian Lee got Best Actress. And Hattie McDaniel won Best Supporting Actress.
0: She was the first black person to win an Oscar. Do
2: you know who the second black woman was to win an Oscar? I don't. Whoopi Goldberg. Shut up. In the 90s for Ghost. Oh.
0: I'm I'm serious. Oh, I believe you. And it took, and that was a
2: supporting one. And Mm -hmm. it took till 2001 for Monsters Ball for Halle Berry. Halle Berry. Wow. To get a leading actress an Oscar. That floors me. Um, You know what else is shameful? During the awards ceremony, Hattie McDaniel and her date had to sit at a table in the back with only themselves. For real. Yes, I'm afraid. For real. Baby Mm steps, I guess. But she was there, and she went up to the podium. You can see her acceptance speech on YouTube. mm -hmm. It's so touching, this speech. And she says, part of it is, my heart is too full to let you know how I feel. And she loses control at the end and obviously bursts into tears and books it. But she got a standing ovation. Good.
0: And an Oscar. Well. (laughs) And a place in the history book.
2: Let's turn briefly back to Margaret Mitchell. The black bald from the junior league flapper who had become Atlanta's unwilling darling. The movie did so well. This number, I actually had to check. Now, this is adjusted for all those economic factors one adjust for. But, okay, this is 1646663700 which might as well just be a jillion. It made a jillion dollars. It's followed by Star Wars. Can we just say Star Wars did not beat it? That's all you need to know. That's well worth the $5,000 to keep the word damn in there. So people in Europe had gotten a hold of Gone with the Wind during the war, and they were besieging her in every language for, quote, the
0: rest of it. Everybody was. When the book came out, but then it this amped up when the movie came out, her phone would be ringing. Her phone at her house. What happened to Rhett and Scarlet? Did they get back together again? Everybody wanted to know. Now the world wants to know. So, side note. (laughs) Hitler had the only non-destroyed copy
2: of the movie in Germany. He thought Scarlet was a very bad example for German women. Yeah, you're a bad example for German men. How yeah. about it? But whatever. I uh, I do wonder what he made of it. He had the only copy. There was a standing order since Clark Gable during the war was actually in the U.S. Army um, that anyone who could bring him an unharmed Clark Gable would get a big fat bag of money, which is the creepiest thing I have read in a long time. <laughs> so the public just couldn't accept worldwide that this is how it ended? Was she going to write a sequel? Heck No. She said, I hope I never write another thing as long as I live.
0: But she did write, and she wrote thank you notes. And She's getting <laughs> bags of mail since the publication of the book, and she's trying to respond personally to each piece of, I mean, Daddy, I guess, would have been proud because it's the proper thing to do. I was going to say, that's a lady for you. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, the World War II broke out shortly after the movie was released and margaret again isn't spending time being a celebrity she's doing what her mother did in world war one and what Scarlett did in the land of make-believe civil war and she volunteers she's volunteering for the american red cross she was raising money she launched two battleships two uss atlantas and there's youtubes for that so you can hear her talking so this story does not
2: have a happy ending uh, she was crossing the ubiquitous peach tree road that keeps a popping up to go to a movie with her husband, a Canterbury tale, a murder mystery, and was struck by a drunk driver.
0: Yeah, she zigged when she should have zagged and she landed on the pavement. Um, her injuries were so severe, she was in a coma for five days before she died on August 11th, 1949, at the age of 48.
2: So let us take a little break, and when we come back, we will talk about our media links and books and sequels, and we'll wrap this up. Just when you think you've seen everything, along comes Pinterest. There's thousands of pictures on every subject we've ever talked about. Just follow the link on our website, thehistorychicks.com. It's the one with the P in the box. <laughs> and we're back! Now it is time for us to talk about media and links and assorted topics mm-hmm. associated with this subject.
0: Uh, let's start with museums. In Atlanta, there's the Margaret Mitchell House, which is the apartment building that the dump was located in. It's actually quite lovely. Um, But it's now a museum, and on the National Register of Historic Places, you can tour it, you can see lectures there, you can rent it for weddings, and in the summer, they have a writing camp for kids, which I thought was cool. Um, In Marietta, there is the Gone with the Wind Museum. In Austin, through January 4th, uh, 2015, there is the Making of the Gone with the Wind exhibit at the University of Texas at Austin. And they have the curtain dress. The curtain dress is there. Um, they have pictures from behind the scenes. And they have a bunch of the I Am Scarlet letters that flooded into uh, David O'Selznick. There's a website that we'll link you to. And it's a Facebook page called the Saving Terra Project. And this guy down in Georgia has got his hands on the facade of Terra. The real facade. It was in storage at RKO Studios, which then got turned over to Desi Lou Productions. So,
2: functionally, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz owned Tara.
0: <laughs> they got sold back to people in Georgia where it was shuffled around from barn to barn, storage place. They kept hoping to make it into a tourist attraction, and it never happened until this guy got his hands on it. And now he's trying to fund uh, getting it out there. So, that's... We'll link you to that. If Tara's important to you.
2: Yeah. And he'll accept
0: donations of time or, you
2: know, ducats. Cash. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah.
2: So on Netflix, as we speak, it's just been taken off. I swear to you. It was on streaming until two weeks ago, but now it's back on DVD. Dang it. Gone with the wind. But it's such a classic. You couldn't get it in your library. I guarantee it.
0: Yeah. And the one in my library is now back. So if you'd like to, <laughs> I had it for quite a while. Watched it several times um, because I have a tendency to nap at about two hours. I swear, there was once the, the scene when the men go off to the meeting.
2: Mm-hmm. I missed
0: that for years. Cause that was
2: what, a Ku Klux Klan meeting? No,
0: I missed the whole scene because I slept through it. Aww. I was doze off and then wake up again. <laughs> it's like, that's oh, funny. what happened?
2: Okay, so Susan had the uh, la ti Museums. I have <laughs> the YouTube 30-second bunny theater version of <laughs> the entire plot condensed using animated bunnies on YouTube. That's exciting. Also, please don't miss Carol Burnett's skit involving Miss Ellen's portiers and Vicki Lawrence screaming, Miss, got it! About every 30 seconds. It's totally funny. I remember that from my childhood. There are a lot of references to Gone with the Wind in The Simpsons, though I'm sorry to say I don't know why. I uh, will send you to a link that examines them all. In fact, there's one. As God is my witness, I will pass the fourth grade. I mean, etc. There's lots of them. Really? Lots. A whole page worth of them. This is a website? Yeah. I didn't see that one. Mm-hmm. There is a play. Called Moonlight and Magnolias. If you ever see it anywhere, it's a whole play based on nothing more than three men in a room trying to write the script for Gone with the Wind, one of whom is David O. Selznick. So if we can find a link to the script online, we will put that in for you. But you can read the whole book online. Several places. There's Gutenberg, and there's also um, a university in Adelaide that kind of put it in a better format than Gutenberg. Sorry, Gutenberg, you do good work. But this was easier to read. We'll post both of those links online so now i was looking around in this 75th anniversary year i thought there would be this endless list of screenings at theaters like the old crest theater in wichita you know film festivals reenactments the major major festival i found happened in the summer so we've missed that but i was digging around and guess what warner brothers has blocked licensing of showings in 2014 until they've released their 75th anniversary edition in October, huh? So, evidently a lot of independent movie houses were all set to show this and they, it's like, wah wah wah. Now they can't. Maybe they can do a big thing on the actual day. Like December 15th. That's kind of a bummer that they have to wait and... Yeah. Not show it. But, one good thing, Fathomevents.com is showing it in select theaters, Wednesday, October 1st. There are two theaters near me. Go to the site, Fathomevents.com, and check the site, and you can search by your zip code. Um, there's really not that many theaters in each city showing it. But... To miss the opportunity of seeing it on a big screen. I'm not going
0: to miss the opportunity.
2: I think, yes, I think you should go. So, is going to maybe literally bootleg, since it's fall, juleps into the theater. Oh. Or we could just go to a theater. I think one of them has a bar. So, that oh, might yeah. be you know That's better. And, you know, more like mint
0: is going to be passed by then. It'll be died off.
2: You can always buy mint in those tiny little... parcels at the grocery. I have
0: it growing on my porch. Well, that's easy. I guess I should... Yeah, but you can't... Mint is never ever over. Right? (laughs) Well, it goes dormant. Well, Susan is the one worried about dormant mint. I'm saying... (laughs) I don't want dried mint in my... I'm saying just
2: take bourbon in the theater. She's worried about expired mint. (laughs) Now, as to books, um, I'm going to do this part, at least mine, a little differently. There is um, the sequel... I Hate the Sequel by Alexandra Ripley. 800 pages of blurg. Mostly in Ireland, so we that daddy blurg? <laughs> Read it if you want to. Buy it at the thrift store. The end.
0: And it was a miniseries, which was horrible as far as I'm concerned. The production values were terrible. They used this contemporary fabrics for the costumes. And, oh, I, I tolerated myself through half of it. And that's it. You tolerated yourself? I tolerated myself (laughs) because I kept commenting and going, Susan, why are you watching this? This is disgusting. (laughs) This is terrible. That's horrible.
2: So basically, we're going to go ahead, if we could give a zero star review, we're going to go ahead and um, do that. There is a sequel, actually a prequel, coming out in October, so obviously I've not read it yet, that I'm anxious to get hold of, and I hope they don't mess it up. It's called Ruth's Journey, and guess who Ruth is? Yes, it is Mammy's story. Uh, I don't know. It could go so wrong, but stay tuned. Could be good. Now, The Wind Done Gone by Alice Randall tells the story of Gone with the Wind from the viewpoint of Chinara, who's the daughter of, brace yourself, Scarlett's father and Mammy. Whoa. So can you see why the estate of Margaret Mitchell tried to block its publication? Now, remember, though, even in the original book... They mention white soldiers and newly freed black women and the babies that result. The book is earthier than the movie. The book is honester than the movie. But this book attempts to address that whole part of Southern life. If you read the reviews, it's completely either a five-star review for bravery and telling it like it is, or a one-star review for, you know, whatever, messing with a classic, making it ugly, blah, blah, blah. I mean... You're going to have to use your best judgment on that one. I will say it's gotten critical acclaim and critical blame. <laughs> now, um, Rhett Butler's People, another book, another prequel, elicits similar love and hate. There's five stars, there's one stars, but it's a prequel that tells you how Rhett Butler ended up in Scarlet's story at all. I'll just list the rest of my own research books on our Pinterest board. The Pinterest board called Books We Recommend, just for brevity. So I'll just leave my research books on that Pinterest board.
0: Uh, there's three books that I really, really enjoy. The first was Southern Daughter, which is the story of Margaret Mitchell by Darden Asbury Pyron. And it gives a lot of backstory to her. There's a whole section in it where they talk literary about the book. But it, it's chock full of really cool information. Um, On the Road to Tara is kind of a coffee table book so by Al Jean Hammett. And you could just flip through it and look at the pictures for Gone with the Wind trivia. I don't think you can do better than the Gone with the Wind trivia book by Pauline Bartel. It's all just random stuff, (laughs) kind of organized, but just it's a very very fast read. It's good for the bathroom because you you know like just (laughs) it's mortified. (laughs) Okay, those are my recommended ones.
2: (laughs) Are we ready for the legacy? Yeah. So what does it all mean, this book, this movie, this icon, this phenomenon, Gone with the Wind? Is it the universal appeal? I mean, people apply the situations in Gone with the Wind to their own situation. You know, the Depression, what they've been through, war, economic downturns, lost love, unrequited love, love for the land, your need for a home, a base. I think it's just that it's the human condition in an epic story, and that's what makes it a classic. And that will do it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Bye. For show notes, links to the things we talked about today, or to donate, please visit us at thehistorychicks.com. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks, with an X, or like us on Facebook, without an X. Listen to us on Stitcher, the super fabulous radio app of tomorrow. If you'd like to see in real life, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on iTunes. Our music comes courtesy of Music Alley. Visit them at music.mevio.com. Important thing I learned from Gone with the Wind three oh one PM is the very first acceptable moment in the day to show your bosom. Thanks, mammy.